Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Varun Saranga, an actor you might know from Schitt's Creek, Working Moms, Best Laid Plans, or How to Be Indie, and you'll be seeing him on the second season of Winona Earp, premiering this Friday, June 9th at 10pm on Sci-Fi in the US and on Space in Canada. Varun picked The Royal Tenenbaums, Wes Anderson's 2001 ensemble drama about the entangled lives of a family of deeply flawed geniuses. Following up the breakout of Rushmore, Anderson went bigger on almost every level, and the result is a meticulously constructed, shockingly funny, deeply melancholy generational drama that plays like a great American novel brought to life, performed by a wonderful cast that includes Gene Hackman, Gwyneth Paltrow, Ben Stiller, Danny Glover, Angelica Houston, and Alec Baldwin, as well as returning Anderson Rep Company members Bill Murray, Seymour Cassell, Luke Wilson, and co-writer, co-star Owen Wilson, with whom Anderson shared the film's sole Oscar nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Oh, one small note about the sound. We recorded this on a very rainy day, and at one point it got heavy enough that we just had to stop and wait it out. So when you hear the roof noise start up, don't worry, it'll be over in a moment. Bear with us. This is someone else's movie. Just watching this, the reason I chose this film out of all of them, is this is the start to me of where he adopted this very deadpan kind of humor oh, yeah. mixed with the visuals that are just so elaborate. And I think the contrast there is like it still makes for real people, which is like to me, I don't know how he does that. Like it, they feel like complete humans with like a range of emotions, but they're still like characters in a book. I, I, I don't. To me, like when I first watched this movie. I didn't know it was a real thing. You know, this could be a movie. Oh, I see. Okay. Because it's well, a storybook. When did you first experience it? So, okay, I was so late to the party with Wes Anderson. Like, I watched Bottle Rocket. Okay. But to me, it wasn't anything like his other films, you know? And I was just like, oh, this is a fun, fun comedy. And then I just kind of wrote it off. I, I watched it with my brother back when I was young. And then I watched Budapest, and I'm like, oh, I should go back and oh, watch that everything. Late. That late. Super late. So I went backwards, Moonrise, Darjeeling. Then I went to Royal Tenenbaums. I'm like, oh, this movie is incredible. Like, this movie to me, yeah. I don't know, because it manages to balance an ensemble cast and give them give them all something to do. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Like, and well, I think that's why it's considered novelistic, too, is that yeah. it's so big and serious about its intentions yeah and you know that it's created through chapters and through an artful introduction the, prologue, it, the book like the first introduction of him doing the book in the in yeah. this series of stuff but that's you know it's it's funny nobody calls grand budapest hotel literary even though it's presented as a memoir and a bunch of other things it it just that's a film film because it's using different aspects yeah and playing with totally time. and this one is just the the thing that you're supposed to hate it's an upper class uh, white family in a ludicrous apartment in New York City that are all just sort of turning on each other because of their tiny peccadillos mm-hmm. like, I would have winced myself <laughs> Yeah, it's the most low stakes in a lot of ways Yeah, but that's what makes it so good to, it's the simplicity we're talking about like a story doesn't necessarily need to be this, this grand thing like I think to me he started to wear on me a bit with like Steve Zizou and like even Darjeeling I just felt like his ambitions were so it was so big. And then Moonrise brought it back to like that heart. And then I thought Grand Budapest was perfect. Mm-hmm. And 
But like uh, some, I think it's like the simplicity of this because the world is so elaborate that he creates. You don't need too much outside of that. Like this, just this dynamic of this upper class family that like wants to be geniuses and yeah. you know. Ah. And I love family stuff a lot. I really, I've had such a normal childhood that I <laughs> when I watch dysfunctional families, it's always kind of like that fly on the wall. Like oh, this is how some people live. <laughs> this is weird. So. You didn't mention Rushmore, so have you Rush- seen I haven't like- seen Rushmore. Oh, wow. That's the one I haven't seen, but I think that's probably the bridge, isn't it? Well, it was the first... I mean, Bottle Rocket is a charming movie. It was yeah. fine... It was charming. Like a textbook 90s It was Owen you know, Wilson movies. hilarious to me. It? Yeah, it's, it's a very pleasing film. Yeah. Uh, I remember seeing it and thinking, oh, this is nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then two years later, Rushmore came to TIFF, yeah. and oh, it wow. was like I'd been hit in the face with a mallet. It was uh, the the most thrilling experience of that year yeah just to watch it and go oh he's an artist like this yeah. is actually you you'll love it it's i mean if you if you like tenenbaums and you like and you really like budapest then yeah rushmore is the punk movie for him mm-hmm. it is just as mannered and precise and 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 calculated as people accuse him of being all the time yeah but, but again like that aesthetic has a purpose it does and, and, it serves its purpose yeah sure. and what he does in rushmore is very similar in its essential premise, mm-hmm. which is that it's the story of an overachieving kid who wants to be recognized for his genius when he probably isn't a genius. Yeah. And so then to see him extrapolate that into Tenenbaums and, and make it range over <laughs> generations and, and, and different um, types of genius and also to be shot in such a gorgeous, precise visual sensibility mm-hmm. that it is genius itself. Yeah. Like it's, it's like his own self-interrogation except that it's also really funny and really sad. Yeah, that's the thing. It's sad, too. But I think I was watching the interview with him about this on the Criterion, and it was he was talking about this was the one where he got really specific, like where he wouldn't, he just really got specific with every department because he, that's where it, like he became the control freak yeah. of everything. But what I love is he still lets, lets the actors play. Like to act in his stuff would be so interesting because I don't know what, what, what they're doing but i think it's all in the dialogue to like the pitter patter a lot of these these things are long takes Mm -hmm. that these actors are able to bounce off each other and create like a genuine genuine connection that you can't really create in coverage yeah because it's so ridiculous you know what i mean like he creates all these arbitrary rules he doesn't do steady cam he doesn't yeah he just dollies constantly like i don't know how you'd keep up so it's (laughs) it's so cool that he's able to ground it in something in some some sort of heart yeah well, it's emotion, right? I mean, it's, it's yeah. the kind of stuff that even, and I guess that's it, even when things are so outsized and exaggerated as to be ludicrous. Yeah. Like just the, <laughs> He's like, a hawk. Then the, yes. the, you know what I mean? What is this? Yeah. This well, is so thinking, unrelatable. I was thinking about Royal's casual racism. Which, <laughs> yeah. You know, like, is it a game? Is <laughs> yeah. He, is he really bigoted? It's hard to read. Yeah. Because he, because by that point, when it starts to become a pattern, like when you figure out what's going on with between him and, and Glover... And everybody else, uh, it's like, oh, but I like him, mm-hmm. and so by creating real people mm-hmm. instead of, you know, exaggerated characters, yeah, they don't. There's not a single caricature. In yeah, this film. everybody is a person. They're just complex and flawed, and yeah, like Ben Stiller. I was gonna say he's never been better, but then he made Greenberg, which is an amazing performance. Greenberg is amazing, but like, oh. Anderson knows how to use Ben Stiller. Yeah. That essential sadness and that smallness, because he's not a big guy. Mm-hmm. Like he, he works out insanely. He's got that Tom Cruise lack of, of 
baby fat <laughs> Yeah, but, but he's, he's shredded he's, ridiculously. Yeah. yeah, but he's small. Yep. And to see him with his kids dressed the same way, it just, like, you know who this guy is right away. The moment, before he even speaks, you mm-hmm. know who he is. And then for Stiller to fill that in even further, and for us to be able to feel his frustration and to be frustrated with him mm-hmm. like you can see every character from their own perspective and from the family's perspective that's what's so fascinating to me mm-hmm. about this every time I watch it is I'm on somebody else's side <laughs> yeah but only for 20 minutes and then it's yeah. just like no wait because there's no there's no villain I mean even though Gene Hackman I guess is kind of kind of he's but not really right. yeah exactly so, you feel bad for the guy yeah because you feel so flawed and so there's so much human aspects what I found funny is about Ben Stiller's character was uh, his outfit, like, you know, the Adidas outfit. Yeah, the dragon suit. And, like, I was watching the commentary, it was a while ago, but I re- always remember this being, like, this must be Wes Anderson's thing, where he, he had this idea for the outfit from the beginning, and then Ben Stiller asked him, what, why, why the outfits? What's it for? And then he just kind of made up an idea that it's an easy way of identifying your kids if they get lost. It's, like, bright red. <laughs> but he says, in his head, he just thought it was funny. Right. Like, and I'm like, that's it. Like, funny doesn't have to be explained. There's... Funny can be absurd, you know? It doesn't have to fit into this box of justifications. It's like, funny is funny. Mm-hmm. And a lot of Wes Anderson stuff is so ridiculous, but it's just so funny because it's absurd. It, it, it really is. And it just... It's... Uh, I don't know. I think, like... That's what I like about, like, a lot of anti-humor stuff. I don't know if you watch, like, Tim and Eric or any of that. Sure, yeah. I mean, it's, it's sometimes t- it's too much, but it's like, you get the joke... Now, let's go the opposite of what the joke is. It's like when you're kind of bored with the joke. And I, sometimes I find that's what Wes Anderson does. He's like, he's a bit bored and he's just going to do something to mess you up. Yeah. I don't know that any of it is supposed to be self-conscious in that way. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's when people are sad, it looks silly. Yeah. Just generally. But they're I, playing I, I it so real, that, right? though. Like, if, you, yeah. if, you, if someone burst in on you crying and they didn't know you, it would look weird. The first, like everybody has that nervous laughter, that response of like, "Oh, that I shouldn't be seeing this." And Tenenbaums over and over again just burrows into that sadness in a way that, like, just like Richie in the mirror, mm-hmm. um, is like inherently ridiculous. Except that it isn't. Yeah, because we know who that is now. It was kind of terrifying because it's the one time like the color palette changes and yeah. you're just like, "Oh God, what the, what is actually going to happen?" Yeah, and that's the thing I love about all of his films really like Moon, um, oh, Moonrise Kingdom especially does it it seems like it's lightweight and silly and arch and then at the very end it just reminds you that you care yeah like, this wallop of, of emotion and in Tenenbaums uh, Rushmore does it too but in Tenenbaums the emotion's there the whole time mm-hmm. you're, you're always aware of the stakes and you're always aware that you know this is a story about parents and children and, and uncles and nephews and nieces and how just family relationships are so fraught and so easily damaged yeah and that this family after however many tragedies is still kind of together yeah is sort of like i i assume the genius thing is just their way of protecting themselves from the world mm-hmm. and it, it isn't true like it's an illusion mm-hmm. well it's this it's this weird high functioning high functioning family like where they're supposed to be geniuses or mm-hmm. smart like i guess this is like a class thing that also is fun to watch where so, yeah. people in the upper class probably have this idea of themselves that they have to achieve something greater than what they had before. And, like, he plays into that so well. I, I almost wonder if he... Was he part of that? Did he have that kind he, of upbringing? Or he wishes he did? I don't know. I think he did. I yeah. think he's... 
you know, there's that whole concept of privilege that they never even discuss. In the yeah, movie. exactly. Like, it's 2000. I don't think anybody was talking about it. <laughs> yeah. But it's there. Like yeah. the idea that they are literally removed from everything in their brownstone and they're they're protected from the world around them and yeah. they really don't engage with anybody no. like they who who is a lesser. Mm-hmm. Um, or the people of color serve them. Yeah. It's oh, that's interesting too. Right. Um, that's something wow, that has yeah. always been a factor in in. Uh, Anderson's films, but there's usually, well, not usually, Bottle Rocket is definitely about a class thing where everybody mm-hmm. presumes to be better than they are. Yeah, totally. Uh, even James Caan, who's ultimately just a, a grifter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Rushmore has that too, because the, the Max Fisher character has gone to this elite private academy, the Rushmore Academy, but he is the son of a barber. Like mm-hmm. he's He has the weight of class consciousness for that entire movie. Mm-hmm. It's just on him. And here... They are, we assume, legitimately wealthy. Mm-hmm. Like they're definitely well off. They have been all along. And if you have the privilege to go off and be a tennis pro, you know, all that, you don't do this stuff if you, if you can't take the time, if you yeah. can't afford to do it. Yeah. So their, their world is always on the verge of being shattered mm-hmm. uh, on, in, in any direction. Sometimes it's romantic, sometimes it's sickness, sometimes it's money. But I think the fact that nobody really ever talks about money is kind of the the key point in the Royal Tenenbaums. I mean, even the title. Mm-hmm. They're setting themselves apart. They're they're not a royal family. It's yeah. just great when that when that title clarifies itself. But you're watching people who have never needed to worry about the world mm-hmm. suddenly realize that they have no control over any of it. Yeah, and it, it, it made them disconnected from one another because they don't care about the world necessarily. And they're so invested in themselves. Yeah. But the weird thing about this is like the love story and it's incestuous, yeah, like yeah, oh, wait, you're oddly on board. It's some Game of Thrones kind of stuff. <laughs> but I, I, I oh, remember no, showing I this to my dad after, yeah. and he was so offended because he's like a traditional Indian guy, okay. and he was so on board with the film, you know, because it's a nice storybook, and then you know it gets dark or whatever. But then in the end, the two the two of them hook up. And it was just like, oh, this is... He, so was, he, he was just like, what is this? Like, because it's like, I guess on the outset, it is incest in a lot of ways. Well, yeah, they're related. It, right? It's, 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 they're related. They're not related, but... But yeah, they a, might as well be. What a bizarre way to do a love story. And I'm still on board, but... Yeah. Pretty strange. Pretty unrelatable. It's funny. That piece of it feels to me more novelistic than anything else and, and more like classical literary, you know, like... Jane Austen, where people fell for cousins all the time, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. where it was just, it's your limited gene pool, mm-hmm. you know, there aren't so many people, you can't go out with a poor, so you might as well look at the cousin who you kind of know and have always known, but he lives three houses over, so it's not <laughs> the same thing at all, but it, it, like that, there, there's precedent for it, there, mm-hmm. there's, there is a sense in the world that they're creating that, yeah, okay, yeah. but yeah, and also they're both, like, they clearly make each other happy. That's, yeah, that's the thing that that Anderson can get me around to that point too, where um, it's it's the same hmm, it's the same impulse on paper as Michael Caine chasing Barbara Hershey and Hannah and her sister. You know, like the the very first line of that film is his internal monologue saying, "Stop it, that's your wife's sister." Mm-hmm. But if you're with somebody in their heads, you can start to see how they justify these decisions and how it comes around. And in the Royal Tenenbaums, there's much more sympathy. For the decision, I think the movie wants them to be happy, mm-hmm. and that makes it okay. Yeah, the movie, movie wants everyone to be happy. Yeah, there's not a lot of, like, again, even for Royal, there's not a lot of scorn heaped on these characters. No, they're suffering from their own faults and flaws. Yeah, so you're in a place with the film that wants 
everything to be okay. Mm-hmm. And I think that's that's a really big thing in Anderson's films anyway. Even the Darjeeling Limited and, and Rushmore, they're broken characters who have lost things that they can't understand that they've lost. And it's about healing and recovering and finding a way out. And Royal Tenenbaums is operating on, a same, on the same base prim, uh, prim, principle. Mm-hmm. It, it's going to be okay if you let it. Yeah. But everybody's such a control freak that they just get in their own way. Yeah. Wow. I think that's the best way to know. I love that. <laughs> Thank you. That's what I do. No, that's so great. I just, I wonder why this thing speaks to me. Mm. I don't really know, to be perfectly honest with you. It's, I think I'm just a sucker for visuals. And I think whatever he did here felt like he was talking about his family and he was drawing all the visuals from kind of that life of his. Yeah. That it just like it touches me on like a childlike level, but I think that's what he does for every. Is he like adult movies for children or something? You know, like he, he works in kind of a miniaturist sort of way yeah. where everything does look like a toy, yeah, or like a bauble. But could you take your kids to this movie? Do you know would they I would they like bored, it? Right, like I don't know. At what point? Maybe teenagers. Would, would teenage? Like I don't know. I like don't now know. in the rearview mirror, it's Zoolander and Hansel, so you'd be fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kids <laughs> They're can, stars. The kids you're sort right. Of figure it out. Yeah, but it is. I don't know at what point you would respond to it, right? Like, you'd need to have understood disappointment. Mm-hmm. And not in a simple way, like in a kind of a life decision thing. You need to have not achieved something or lost something. Yeah, it feels really like very things. adult things that you need to experience in order to appreciate this movie. Yeah. So that's why I'm kind of grateful I saw it after the fact. I mean, seeing Bottle Rocket as a kid did feel like a kid could watch that movie, yeah. you know? It's pleasant. It's yeah, and it, the stakes are low enough that stakes are low. You don't have to worry. About it. <laughs> it's funny. I don't know now because there is a there's an innocence at work in a lot of his films, uh, Rushmore, Moonrise Kingdom specifically, mm-hmm. but also Budapest is about a kid learning about disappointment and morality. Right? Yeah, like it's, he's it's about a, it's it's about a child who's blundered onto the set of Grand Illusion. <laughs> yeah, and and learning incredible. Um, high-risk lessons mm-hmm. in a beautiful, fun... You know, you you, you can watch a, an Anderson movie and appreciate the joy of the filmmaking and the bounce of the craft and the pacing and the Mark Mothersbaugh music. Like, they're just... They're deeply pleasurable experiences, but they're all so sad. Yeah. They're all melancholy. They are all melancholy. And, and wistful. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's... Um, it's, a, it's a hard line to hit. I think, and I'm amazed that he's done it more than one. Like, even Fantastic Mr. Fox. Yeah, that's true. That's a movie kids could watch, too, though. Sure. It's got whack. (laughs) Exactly. But yeah, wow. Fantastic Mr. Fox was so... I was... So is this true? Like, I was reading about how they did it, and, like, they would record the actors out in, like, the field, and, like... yeah. That would be so fun. Yeah, they wanted natural sound. Yeah. And it's... It's insane. I mean, yeah. think about it, like George Clooney and Meryl Streep sitting, <laughs> You're running around like in an empty field. Yeah, I know. Yeah, there were a couple of movies that tried different things with kids' movies, ostensibly kids' movies. That and, and where the wild things are. Yeah, uh, which Spike Jones shot uh, with actors in suits. Which I honestly, I really, really loved, and I connected on such. I remember tearing up so often in that movie. It oh, just I was cried. so beautiful. I cried embarrassingly. But hard. then the reviews, people oh, didn't get it. They didn't like it. I don't yeah. know what. Well, I don't know what I. Um, what I wasn't seeing, what they're seeing. You either, I think you either buy into the concept that you're watching this story be reconfigured through the context of the kids 
parents falling apart and mm-hmm. like the yeah. child is he's internalized the divorce and he's watching it play out and I get so clear mm-hmm. yeah yeah I don't think it could get any more yeah. obvious than that and so sad and, yeah it's and so sad I think people who want the book to be what the book is mm-hmm. you know, like want to hold it separate and this beloved childhood memory suddenly becoming this other thing mm-hmm. I get that you'd resist it but it's an adaptation the book is like, it's it's what um Oh, Stephen King quotes this all the time. I think it was James M. Cain who used to say that like, uh, the, you know, someone would say, oh, the movie's ruined your books. And he's like, no, they're right there on the shelf. Oh, yeah. The books are the same. Yeah, they'll always be there. Yeah. That's why I don't understand. Like, I get it, the the passionate hate for remakes, but it's like, your thing will always be there. Yeah. It'll always... But that being said, like, about the kids' movie feeling sad, where mm. the wild things are... Like, I grew up with, I thought kids' movies were supposed to have, like, a tinge of sadness. Like, my one of my favorite movies is Secret of Nim. Okay, yeah. And it was just so dark and sad and scary and, and like, I just, I don't know. I thought that was, that was the standard of kids' movies. Well, the best ones are. Yeah. The best ones still have it. I mean, even now, what Pixar's doing with... Yeah, know, that's true. Inside, Inside Out was Out, nice. Or, or even Finding Dory, which is kind of a nightmare in its way, like, <laughs> yeah. narratively. They're, they're really dealing with the possibility of... You know, you learn from trauma and sorrow, mm-hmm. and yeah, those are the best stories, right? Because totally, yeah. everybody's been sad, mm-hmm. and then you get the joy at the end. Like yeah. You actually get to come out and, uh, as as Anderson does. He gives you this incredible high uh, because you've been through it with these people and now you understand like they are yeah. in their ending i love it it is the incredible high like when owen wilson's driving down the road and he's going uncontrollably and he crashes like that is such a laugh out loud like because in a movie that's moving at this kind of like gentle pace and sometimes and you know it moves frantically when gene hackman's there but just having that moment there is like oh this is so random and awesome and yeah. i'm excited for this and it's like the first sense of like crazy handheld when like uh, ben stiller's chasing him across the house yeah. and you just can't, it's like oh there this is such a comedy this is so delightful to watch but there's like real stakes here like did he hurt anyone he yeah. killed the dog yeah, yeah. <laughs> with this kind of dark Wes Anderson is not afraid to kill dogs <laughs> yeah he's, he's not the, afraid he's to kill one animals filmmaker where the dog's not safe no and Spielberg Spielberg and Wes Anderson are the two I remember being it's so I guess it's the whole thing because they're like animals are innocent in film mm-hmm. I remember seeing in uh what was the Coen brother film with the cat died remember uh it? the guitar and the oh uh, Lewin Davis. Yeah, Lewin Davis. And right, he, the cat dies on the side of the road. And I just remember being heartbroken. I'm like, what is this? Oh, it's because he's, it's innocent and it had no part to play, but it dies. And God, whatever. I locked that out completely. Oh, really? <laughs> I oh. remember the cow and oh, brother. That's what I was thinking. I think that was just like their fuck you to save the cat. I, that's my theory. You know what I mean? Like, screw structure. Yeah. Like, we don't follow. I don't know. Maybe it was. Well, plus, you know, Lewin Davis' entire life is suffering. So, of course, he would witness all of these things. Yeah. And, uh, and not turn it into art. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Failed to ca- to capitalize on it. Yeah, um, I don't. Yeah, I think Anderson's willingness to do that. I don't know if it's entitlement or if it's the thing that like because he killed yeah. a dog in um, uh, Moonrise Kingdom as well. Oh yeah, yeah, and oh, uh, and it, they're earned, right? Like it's okay that these mm-hmm. things happen because narratively there's a place for it and people are allowed to be sad about it. Mm-hmm. But. But see, it's such a whimsical world yeah. that you feel like, is it earned? But it is. Like, there, there's some sort of magic. There's this intangible well, that this, he's able to do that. Yeah, it's, the int- it's like the intrusion of drama mm-hmm. into this Like, bobble. when he cuts himself, too. Yeah. It's the intrusion well, of drama. This, this film totally gets that. Like, yeah. More than, I think more than almost any of the other ones. It's about the, well, Rushmore, too. They're about the desperate attempts to maintain uh, 
your kingdom mm-hmm. and watching it just be assaulted from all sides. Yeah. Like no one is safe. Nothing is guaranteed. You, even if, even though I think Royal doesn't, I mean, I'm sure he experiences love for his children, but he keeps saying that he doesn't. He <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Putting everybody at arm's length because yeah. that insulates him. Yeah. And, uh, but I love that moment when, uh, Alec Baldwin, when he's like, oh, this has been the best six days of my life. And then Alec Baldwin's like, in Royal actually meant it, yeah. you know? And he just thinks, I was like, oh, that's such a... So I love that the narrator's there to let us know what he's thinking right yeah. now because and he's th- so guarded. And that's a device that might not work for other films as well. No. Because, I mean, it's, use it very sparingly. The opening is 15 minutes of narration. How yeah. we, Like, what? Yeah, and I'm not bored, but that's a long time. You're not supposed to do that. No, and it was... Cr- I mean, when we first... We saw that... It didn't play TIFF. It played... Um, oh, so you saw this when it came oh, out? Oh, sure. I'm old. Wow. Okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You're 2001. Yeah, I guess so. We It screened for us... The Toronto Film Critics were shown in early-ish, like early December. It didn't open until Christmas Day. Yeah. And Disney set up a screening for us early because of our deadlines and our... Like, that, this happens every year. We'll see basically every Christmas movie... Everything that's supposed to open in January and February, too, for the most part, if it's qualifying for awards, we will see them before our voting deadline, which is around the 10th of December. So the first two weeks of December, two or three movies a day, and they're all these huge Oscar-caliber pictures, and it's exhausting. Um, <laughs> that's awesome, though. But Yeah, well, but it just played. Yeah. And that first, fifth, that, that prologue sequence, um, just you realize that you... At the, you know, the moment when the Falcon crests and the music bursts and there's this little crescendo 15 minutes into the picture and you're just like oh uh, this is gonna be good <laughs> yeah. and just this was and this was his follow-up to Rushmore so it was fraught for me yeah you know sophomore syndrome or something I was worried he was gonna blow it and it's like no this is not only is this going to be good but this is a whole additional level of storytelling there's an ambition to it that wasn't in Rushmore which is an incredibly ambitious film too and what the hell? How is this guy? You're younger than I am. Like, what's what am I seeing? <laughs> yeah. And it's yeah. It's it was amazing because there. I'm, I've talked about this a few times on the show. There's a handful of experiences I've had in movie theaters where I've spent the entire movie on edge, waiting for it to go wrong, and you can only really enjoy it the second time through when you know. That oh it's gonna wow! Be, when you know that they've. That's like a in. critic's mind, though. It kind of is. Yeah. Like you're waiting like it's like Reservoir Dogs, which and, and I think everybody has that experience, but they don't know how to explain it. It's for me, it was Reservoir Dogs, Gross. Point Blank and Shaun of the Dead and maybe a couple of other movies but they're like this is so in my pocket that I don't want it to not be just waiting for it to deviate for it to change its mind it's like oh I want to do my thing no do my thing yeah 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 yeah. I want you to go and we all feel it and it's it's the thrill of watching a movie that's totally in control of itself Mm -hmm. but when it lines up with what you're hoping for like when it's delivering something that's made for you yeah that's an amazing feeling. And I didn't have that. I had that with Rushmore, but I didn't have it with Tenenbaums. With Tenenbaums, it was a different kind of excitement mm-hmm. because you're going to take me somewhere that I didn't think you could go. Mm-hmm. And in the first 10, 15 minutes, he is declaring, like that prologue says, this is the kind of movie it's going to be. Shut up. I got this. <laughs> yeah. And it just goes for it. And it's, again, you know, like once once you start seeing... The mechanics of it, once it reveals itself to you, it's it just never stops showing you things, mm-hmm. and it's so great. It's so, it's so like a testament to his planning. Like I don't, yeah. I wonder if any filmmaker plans as much as him. Like it feels like it's all in the script. It's all in his head. It's all the drawings that his brother does. Like it's yeah. all, it's all of these things that he's constantly, he's ready for it. If he has an answer to everything, he's figured it out all in his mind. 
because usually as a director you you want to play things on the fly like any director i've worked with it's always like you know let's let's find the moment let's but of course he always allows time to improvise with his actors and figure out what the scene means to them but in terms of everything else he's already figured it out right i wonder how many of the improv takes make it into the film yeah just because he's he knows what he wants i remember he watched uh I, i watched when i was watching commentary he he had a owen wilson had an improv line but that he used in another movie, and he just sounded so disappointed. He's like, "I let Owen improv- improvise." On, it was uh, when he was spinning the the cowboy whip, and oh, he yeah. said something I can't recall. But uh, he's like, "I let Owen improvise the line," but then I found out he did it in another movie. But that's what happens when you let an actor improvise. It's the risk you take. <laughs> I'm like, "Oh, he doesn't like improv." I don't think, <laughs> you know. Oh man, that's well that what... would make sense. Like Noah Baumbach is similarly with 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 whom he wrote. Um... Shit, Darjeeling was it? Or Zisu. One of them. Oh, oh Noah Baumbach wrote... It's going to eat away at my brain. I should double-check this. Yes, he co-wrote The Life Aquatic with Noah Baumbach. He co-wrote Darjeeling with uh, Roman Coppola and Jason Schwartzman, which, as we were saying, is why Schwartzman has sex scenes in that film. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to see that. <laughs> I screened that for an audience. We actually, uh, we ran the Darjeeling Limited one year at Harborfront, and it's like, do we... <laughs> no, I think you can get away with it. There's no Could, actual... Well, there's no... I mean, yeah. it's pretty... All the sort of... Pretty the, adult. The hip nudity, the stuff yeah. that they do with Portman, that's all in the prelude. That's in... Yeah. The, there um, is nudity. There's the brief nudity in Royal Tenenbaums with the, when it's going over Margot's relationship. That's true. And she has the lesbian thing, so right. there's that. Yeah. But sex isn't a big thing for Anderson. No. Passion is. Yeah. Like he responds well to people who desire, mm-hmm. but I, uh, yeah, he's always been kind of... At arm's length with actual sex. Mm-hmm. It, it, I don't know that it makes him uncomfortable, but I think part of the aesthetic he creates is is more, I don't know, hermetic? Like, yeah. he can't allow for it? That's that's a very good point. It's a, His romance is almost always sexless. Yeah. Except for Darjeeling. Yeah, yeah, Hotel Chevalier is so weirdly set up. And even then, like, it's set apart from the film. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> it's like, oh, we'll put it in a short film. I can't. It's three story. It's a story within a story within a story. Yeah. It's yeah. so separated. Yeah, Grand Budapest, the sex is icky. Like, it's, yeah. it's not... It's so, with the old people. It's, yeah, it's, but it's presented as a, like, almost a fetish or as a, as a function, mm. even though... Um, even though Fines plays it so wonderfully. Oh, no, no. <laughs> he seems I, like he genuinely is in yeah. love with these elderly women. He's a man of passion, although the way it's presented in the story is that it's fractured through this memory of him mm-hmm. thinking of, of, of Zero thinking it's creepy. <laughs> yeah, oh, oh, that's interesting. It is through, okay, yeah. We're I forget that. that it's through Zero's perspective. Yeah. Yeah, but then it's through the perspective of and the Zero, too. but then he's being told by, by, uh... Jude Law's character when he's older. Yeah, Wilkinson. Wilkinson, yeah. yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I don't know whose perspective is it. Is that the point? Yeah. Is it almost no? It's both of their skewed perspectives yeah. smashed into one. And of course, then you have the literary device in the Royal Tenenbaums, which is that I don't know that Anderson and Wilson are the authors of that book. Mm-hmm. Like we're seeing a piece of literature. I mean, Salinger comes up a lot, Franny and Zoe in the stories, but I don't know. I don't know whose perspective we are ultimately seeing. I mean, yeah. maybe it's Alec Baldwin's perspective. For yeah, that's true. The character I think I relate to most in this is uh, Eli. Oh, yeah. It's just like this outsider looking in, hoping to join the party, you know? And he maybe Like, I almost kind of feel that way when I'm acting or, like, if I do something so great, it's just like, oh, will I ever achieve that again? You know? It's yeah. a weird... It's a weird, like... 
high and low of acting when you do a great scene and you connect with your partner and you figure it out and you you, you all collaborate and it's a beautiful thing it's like oh let me how am i gonna do that again like how does that come about again and like eli to me was like that was a cool relatability as like an artist uh, he's just like he wants to be somebody special but he kind of lucked out on his first his first his first little thing you yeah. know <laughs> his first book it's a mccormack like book and it's just it's funny to see him like good delve into drugs to try and find inspiration and claim that he's not this poser that he clearly is yeah. you know it that's 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 what that was really fun i love that owen wilson wrote that for himself like this idea of that character because there's so many because that's true to me like what most artists are like these people trying to achieve something before maybe that's wes anderson saying like hey that like this could have been me too yeah i was wondering like, if that's how when you're following up rushmore do you really have to get like get in front of that do you yeah. have to say uh i mean i'm sure other people must have thought it was as much of a masterpiece as I did. It was critically hailed and yeah. an Oscar nomination or two, and, and it's, you know, magnificent. And that must be terrifying. Do you build in a character who yeah. is, who, is a, who had a prodigy-like success and then failed in order to insulate yourself? Or is that just on your mind and neither of them really... Like, did it just come up naturally? Did they even know yeah, yeah. it could be used as a shield? Yeah, no, it's true. That's also why I love Superbad as a movie, because it could have been a terrible movie with the title Superbad. Yeah. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, there's so often that these things could just fall on their face, because it is that idea that you're waiting, I don't know, maybe because we're becoming increasingly more cynical, but it's just like, we're waiting for things to fail in movies, because we've seen so much, mm. right? Yeah, yeah. Superbad also, weirdly enough, has that kind of insulation in that you're watching the movie in their heads. Like, that music is their music. It's, yeah. not, it's not diegetic. <laughs> like, that, that dance sequence at the beginning. Yeah. Of course, this is how they see themselves. Yeah, yeah. And then you get the reality of it. It's just so painful. So painfully awkward. So painfully. So relatable. I don't know. I think, like, that... But that's what he does. It's the losers. It's like, that's... Those are the movies I'll always relate to. Because I always kind of feel like that at heart. Because I never had this cool high school experience. I was with the film nerds, you know what I mean? Right. I was making stupid movies. We saw Napoleon Dynamite and we were, like, trying to imitate that stuff. And it was just... It was... That was, like, to me, is the most fun, like, being an outsider and relating to being an outsider. But then, as you start to get, like, closer to whatever the circle of mainstream is you're just kind of like oh is this is this what i want to be is this who i am yeah and it's like fun it's it's interesting and it's it's fun watching these movies because it's like you're allowed to be different and still exist in the mainstream you know yeah it's funny you mentioned napoleon dynamite because that almost felt at the time like someone riffing on anderson it was it right? was the it really was of the cinematography and the musical choices it was, and there was a precision. Mm -hmm. It was the exact same precision that you're talking center about. center composition thing. This, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Visual symmetry. But the characters felt like this guy had it in his head. I remember watching behind the scenes stuff on it. He'd give them like straight up line readings. Oh, yeah, yeah. He was hardcore about this. Like Pedro, came, was his audition was so much more animated and different. He would come up to him every take and like make him reduce it and, you know, become this genius character. And I, yeah. I almost have like a weird battle with that. It's like how creative is the actor being if he's just doing what the director wants? But the results speak for itself. It yeah. was incredible yeah. to watch. You can say that about Anderson's films too. Like there's, if you violate the aesthetic. Yeah. 
I, I wonder if he's ever replaced an actor. I wonder if that's ever happened, that there's been something oh. that didn't fit. Because it feels like by the time they get to set, he would know yeah. if it's working or not. Did he figure it out with Bill Murray and how well his style fits with Bill Murray? I like, assume, you know? yeah, it's like, whatever I do, I must have him on me. Yeah, yeah exactly. He must be in my pocket, he must be available to me. <laughs> because he fits so well. His deadpanness, I think, sets the precedence. Like, everyone looks at Bill Murray like, oh, we'll try and do it in that level of deadpan. Because people are so dead in it, but yeah. still alive. Oh, like, yeah. No, God, you have to see Rushmore. That's yeah, just, okay. I'm seeing it. I know I feel like a poser for More than anything this. else, that's the film that is the Bill Murray career. Like, the post-everything post, yeah. the post career. The, the late Bill Murray Like, his there. resurgence. Yeah. Because okay. he is Well, just... Lost in Translation, to me, was like, that was Bill That was Murray. years later, though. When was that? 2004? 2005? Yeah, Rushmore's 98. Oh, shoot. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, Rushmore's um, Very. a good three or four years before anything else. It's like watching... Oh, we were talking about Shane Black earlier. It's like yeah. watching Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Yeah. It's like, well, that's where Iron Man comes from. Yeah, exactly. Iron Man wasn't the downy comeback this movie is. Yeah, no, 100%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Oh, no, it was, it was amazing. And it uses him... It uses his stillness. It uses his sadness. Yeah. That kind of inherent hollow thing he can do. <laughs> yeah. It's, <laughs> it's true. I remember Eric from Tim and Eric, though, talking about... It was a YouTube clip just talking about how he thought Bill Murray is overrated because he does the same thing to me. Right. But then I'm like, no one can do what Bill Murray does. That's the difference, ultimately. Yeah. It's like, even if you're doing the same, no one can do that. Like, there's there's such a depth to him but a humor that's so bright and like, uh, there's like a shining light through him that even if someone's doing the same, that's that's what I hate about criticism of actors. Like even if they're doing the same thing, do you still really enjoy watching them? Yeah. And you know, I don't know. It's a conversation that keeps happening now because things are so stratified. There are actors who don't seem to do very much. Yeah. And then there are actors who are insanely demonstrative. Yeah. And then there are actors who disappear. And it's like, I uh, how did I break it down? If you look at... Yeah, oh, Tilda Swinton, Kate Blanchett, and Jessica Chastain. They all do the thing that they do. Mm-hmm. And it's acting. And it's different. Yeah. But it's not method, and it's not... Like, just... Chastain, as far as I can tell, ceases to exist. And yeah. just funnels whatever she's feeling. Totally. character. Uh, Swinton has poise and elegance and wit and can turn it on and off as necessary. Like what she does in, in Moonrise Kingdom, for mm-hmm. example, is just so unique and marvelous and yeah. bizarre. Snowpiercer was my favorite thing in the world. And then there's that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was it's so like full on Thatcher. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I guess you're right. We see all these. And then Blanchett uh. has that same kind of quality as, as Swinton, mm-hmm. but like, and, but is, but can be, imperious or light or silly I mean look at her in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull she's the only one giving the performance that movie deserves like, mm-hmm. she knows exactly what she's doing <laughs> yeah. uh, and not to not to denigrate poor like, Shia come on yeah, he <laughs> knew what he was doing. Um, but yeah but, but those three women are the people that I've been using as the example lately it's like tell me any of those as an acting style that is definable yeah, and yeah. You just can't. They're, they're like, they're. That's the Bill Murray effect. He is always Bill Murray, and he is always the character. And mm-hmm. even you know, like when he's he always Bill Murray, and he's always the character. Yeah, when that's he shows the best up way. Badger in in Fantastic Mr. Fox, like, even before he speaks, you know, it's Bill Murray. <laughs> the character looks like him. Yeah, and it's yeah. perfect. Oh it's like man. Anderson gets him in a way that no other. Well, a handful of other filmmakers seem to, like Jarmusch mm-hmm. maybe, but what what he does in and in Tenenbaums, like when he shows up, you're just like. Oh right! Yes, you're Bill Murray. You're gonna be. It's gonna be okay. Yeah, yeah. there's stuff. There's so much stuff. There's so much stuff. I think it, that's as long as you. I don't know. I guess he's lived such an interesting life that he has endless depth. 
And that's all you're really looking for in an actor is just this incredible, this incredible story that they want to tell you. And you know, Bill Murray does that, and Wes does that. I love watching like directors like Wes and like Edgar Wright because it's almost like you're watching them. Like this yeah. is with the if they could be personified as a as a thing, this is like that's you so rarely get that. Directing seems so functional now in like this era of like blockbusters and superhero movies where they all like I don't know if the who the director is of like Ant Man or you know what I mean? Like but it just feels like I mean it used like to be they, Edgar, but yeah. it just yeah. it feels like the same same thing and it's just like I miss, I I, I really pray for this era of when it comes back, you know? Yeah. When like the Chinese movie going audience starts to get like savvy, because they will because it's all new to them, like all these blockbuster movies. When they start to crave a difference in like their movie language, then that that'll that'll start to change these movies too. Because now they're just so curtailed for the world that hasn't been experienced to these movies over and over again. Yeah, I think it's, and I was gonna say it's bizarre that Warner is having so much trouble with their superhero stuff. Yeah, but their success I find in the giant machinery movies is in Godzilla and Kong. Yeah, they've given the properties to directors who are trying stuff. Oh yeah, that's true. Yeah. So did you, did you like the new King Skull Kong? Yeah. yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's, I heard it's really good. It's a seventies movie. They, oh, okay. They set it in nineteen seventy three, and it's a Vietnam adjacent kind of like they really they're they're liberally quoting Apocalypse Now and yeah. a few other things. And once again, once it reveals its tone, you're just like, oh yeah, I see what you're doing. I forgive anything once it figures out its tone. I've been watching Riverdale. Oh yeah, <laughs> I'm a I think that's a great show. Yeah, you know, no. it's such a it's just so cheesy. And the stakes are so stupidly high, but they're kind of aware that they're so high. Like, you know what I mean? Like, they take it so seriously. Right. Every scene is this, and I can't help but laugh at them and okay. kind of just enjoy it. I don't know. To me, like, I really, I like watching bad things. I'd watch like The Bachelorette, and I'll laugh at them. Yeah, I don't know. To so that's your release. Though. That's my release. Yeah. But it's almost that thing of like watching like a fly on the wall, observing like because I see things very from like a comedic. Comedically, a lot found a lot find a lot of things funny, you know, right. because of how inherently ridiculous it is, and when a character's taking a situation way too serious when they shouldn't. Right. That to me is that so is funny. Funny. I mean the and the idea too that, and I, I guess uh, I'm trying to figure out how to knit it back into Anderson, but I, you really don't have to. If you believe, if you're if you are so um self-absorbed mm-hmm. that you think that and this maybe this is like because it's max fisher and it's royal tenenbaum if you are so self-absorbed that you think your minor crisis is more important than someone's actual pain yeah that's that is funny yeah uh, and, that is so funny and that is all reality television right mm-hmm. like that whole idea of, of since the second season of everything once people think they know the game that the show is playing and start trying to play into it and then the show's production starts to fight against that yeah and you know the villains are always the one who are trying to be the coolest or the fun or the sharpest or people who have invented a persona for themselves it's like oh well we're gonna puncture that right away yeah yeah yeah, yeah. no control in reality television the, the people involved have absolutely no control over what's going to happen to their performance once mm-hmm. the editors get it once the music comes in it's just I'm fascinated by it, but I can't stand watching it. I just can't bear it. Yeah, you just, it's too much for you, eh? Yeah, it's like watching people in a, in a, I would really rather watch, and I guess that's why I like Unreal. You're, you're watching people in a room destroy other human beings. <laughs> yeah. And, or turn people into fictional creations. There's something, there's something to be said. I think there's a, there is a tinge of like nihilism in like uh, Wes Anderson's films where you kind of, I mean, in the sense that, in the sense that nothing really matters because it's all told in a book format. Like, you're always removed from it all. You have such a distance from this work 
and he makes you really distant, especially in Budapest where you're two stories deep mm-hmm. and you're like, oh, okay, I can kind of enjoy when bad things happen in this movie and I can enjoy when good things happen in just an equal measure, really. Yeah. Like, I'm not rooting for one outcome over the other. Yeah. Well, it's the thing in Moonrise Kingdom where all the adult characters know that the kids are making a bad decision. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. The kids don't, but the movie does, too. Mm-hmm. So you're waiting for them to hit the inevitable realization mm-hmm. and it makes it bittersweet because... Somehow, even though the film knows this is doomed to fail, Mm -hmm. we are allowed to hope alongside the kids. Yeah. And maybe in Royal Tenenbaums, too, to some extent, you want to buy into this family's delusion because then that means, like, if you pretend you're a real family long enough, then you actually are one. Yeah, wow. Maybe that would be nice. That would be a beautiful thing, I think. But the distance, the literary um, pretense allows you to enjoy the failure too because yeah. you're already being told that none of this is real. <laughs> yeah, none of this is this is a movie, but this is a book and this is just a work of fiction. We never talked about his visual style. Yeah, yeah. Which I think is one of the most important things. Like his allure is that there's no one I don't think there's anyone like him. I don't I mean I don't have a deep enough film history to know like what he's emulating. It seems like he's watched so many movies yeah. to like gra- have this grab bag that he created of this like no no steady cam, jibbing all the time, dolly movements, this lateral framing, like yeah. it can only be in a 2D space. Yeah, his love of the anamorphic, yeah. like, the breathe when the, sh- when the lens shifts, that yeah. kind of thing, the way the film sort of actually vibrates. Yeah, yeah. It's a tactile, artificial thing, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's his precision, which wasn't present in Bottle Rocket mm-hmm. at all. No, not at all. Uh, but is in Rushmore fully formed. Okay, so uh, does even, he do like the two-dimensional style, or is yeah, it more? It's, it's still little, in, it's, it's still inviting less, you in, right? Yeah, it's a little less pronounced in Rushmore. It's still pretty real, but it opens with a montage sequence and and, uh, and titles to explain things and and sort of um, instantly tells you you're not in the real world. Yeah, and then it introduces the fact that its lead is damaged by the death of his mother, and so there's there's real stuff in an artificial package, which mm-hmm. is kind of his thing. But in Tenenbaums, I think the the addition of the the narrator, which he's never done since, no, is a real. I mean, I suppose Budapest has narration, but it's not. But it's not over image, yeah. Yeah, and it's a and it's a an organic character telling a story as opposed to a third party who doesn't <laughs> appear in the film. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Royal Tenenbaums feels like the peak of the artifice, at least as far as that goes, and then it changes into a different kind of artifice subsequently. Mm-hmm. I think like one of the most beautiful sequences in film was. To me, just because of the emotional quality of it, was when Margot comes off the bus and sees Richie, and it's just like, ah, I love the slow-mo. I, as cheesy as the slow-mo moment is, yeah. it's just the acting from Gwyneth Paltrow is so subtle, and it's just the... I love that all the Navy men are crossing as he's, uh, he's, he's watching her. It's just so... Ah, it's so much to take in. Yeah. Like, it's so beautiful to watch. That's the crescendo. That's what I was talking about. Yeah. It builds to these moments yeah. that are just overwhelmingly powerful mm-hmm. even though yeah it's composed and organized and clearly rehearsed <laughs> yeah clearly and, rehearsed and impossible yeah but you want he does that thing like he is so fake that he makes you he he embraces artifice so aggressively that he makes you want life to work like that yeah and that's the that's the triumph of of fantasy over reality or or, or determination over 
actuality. I don't even know what I'm trying to describe, but that thing where if you believe in it enough, it can be real. That powers all of his movies in mm-hmm. bizarre wish fulfillment kind of fantasy yeah. that isn't about wish fulfillment. Yeah. That's not what these people want. Really. <laughs> yeah. They want to get to a starting point where you can be okay. Mm-hmm. And is it raining again? Yeah. Yeah. And that's his that's his thing. You you he he gets you on side with these people who have no chance of realizing their dreams. <laughs> no. No. But they kind I think it's always like they learn a, it's always the cheesy thing of they learn the better lesson, you know? Yeah. It's the dreams are not what you always want. And it's always grass is greener. Yeah. But like the real lesson of connection and love and yeah. fulfilling yourself in other ways. And that thing too about once you're broken you can be stronger. Yeah. Knowing where the break is or something. It's, I mean that's that's the Ben Stiller arc, right? Like mm-hmm. He spends, what is it, two years coming out of this thing? Yeah, yeah, after his wife dies yeah. in, the cr- in the plane crash. And you finally, and it takes another crash, another collision, and another death to liberate yeah. him. Yeah. Just because he realizes he can't control anything, which is such a weird place for a Wes Anderson movie to end up. But then Gene Hackman tries to control everything. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it's only when he releases that control in the same way Ben Stiller's character does. That he just starts to accept the love that's actually present, that was always there, but he never really wants to accept or yeah. see or appreciate. So I love Gene Hackman's scenes in this movie because he is such like a firecracker. Like you know what I mean? Like this, the camera like loves to work around him, and his energy that he's always bringing is always this this rushed kind of like business like yeah. mentality that yeah. he just ah, he crushes it. It's an amazing performance, and it's yeah. one of those valedictory roles too, where it somehow feels like it's summing up an entire career, even though he yeah. never made a movie like this. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's, he's never played a role like this, and yeah. yet he kind of always has. Mm-hmm. Talking about actors who don't seem to be doing anything different from movie to movie, and yet always, yeah, you know, no, that's true. Levels. Hackman's like I'm trying to think I think this is like 122 episodes in and I think this might be the first time anybody's brought a Hackman movie on oh okay interesting weird you'd think he'd be in everything yeah but but because uh, he is in everything yeah. <laughs> like that's the thing he's sprinkled every- no you're right this really? is Hackman being Hackman but not he's being royal yeah it's an amazing performance it really is and again it's the kind of thing where an actor who has been around for 50 years suddenly is perfectly placed yeah and in a Wes Anderson movie, I, I think it's the it is the only time they ever worked together. Right? It is the only He's time. I remember watching an interview with him and he was uh, with Gene Hackman, and he was talking about how Wes Anderson took him to dinner, and like they just met and you know they wanted to chat, and how Wes Anderson wa- uh, was saying telling him he was writing a role for Gene Hackman, and Gene Hackman was just like, I don't want that because I don't want to get locked into whatever you think I am, this idealized version of how I act. Okay. I want to fit into the character, but regardless, Wes still wrote it for him. But he, he fits into this idealized version, but he still makes it his own character. Yeah. I wonder how you would even start to do that. Yeah. I, would Anderson... Like, does Wes Anderson conceive of other actors? I guess he must then. But, he but must. Can't, yeah. Who is a Gene Hackman type? Like, Royal Tenenbaum yeah. on the page is not a Gene Hackman type. No, no, not at all. Although, now he is. <laughs> yeah. Just, He's, you can't imagine him as any other character. And you know, Angelica Houston... I think is like the perfect character for that role, and but she like isn't given a lot of dialogue. But no, I she really think her, her reactions are great. Yeah, you know? well, she and Murray kind of exist to sort of comment externally because they're not yeah. part of the family exactly. They're yeah. just they're in the orbit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. And then Murray's uh, examining that kid, uh, the actor from Freaks and Geeks. He's just like. Uh, it's <laughs> such a bizarre relationship. It's it's another examination of like a genius in a different way. Yeah. 
I thought, uh, ah, that's so funny. It's just so many characters, so colorful. Like, each are so unique. It's almost like he takes a caricature and then flips it on its head. I mean, that's why it'd be, f- it'd be interesting. To- I wonder what it's like to be directed by Wes Anderson. Mm-hmm. Like, is he precise? Like, I know that he does allow his actors to act, but is he precise? Like, if you flub a line, like, will he be precious about this line that he wrote? Yeah. Like, I, I don't know, because it, watching the Budapest, uh, Ray Fiennes, he has so much dialogue, and it's incredible, his delivery, but... What if he messes up? Like, what? Uh, how do you direct Ray Fiennes in that moment of yeah. this? Like, what? What do you want him to do? I don't know. Yeah, and all of his films, including um, Tenenbaums, are so visually complicated. It's not just the precision with which they're yeah. Composed, you have to hit these marks in a, such a precise way. The cameras moving. Yeah. people are involved. Yeah, yeah. It's like watching Rube Goldberg machines. <laughs> yeah, all the time. Yeah, no, it's so true. Yeah. Wow, I don't know. This this is like. So I don't think there's any, like, it's like the, people like Wes Anderson and Edgar Wright and even Apatow, they, like, give me hope that there's no prescribed way of doing things and there's always a new way of doing things. Even, like, Noah Baumbach as well. It's just like, oh, they're they're finding a new way of approaching film that just makes you excited as a person, to, especially as an actor, to be in, like, if, like, I've, I hope for the opportunity to be in Apatow one day. Like, that's my dream, 100%. Just because it's, like, that's how I think film should be done in comedy. It's just like this looseness, this still this connection and a lot of heart and just, yeah. Yeah. Just yeah. let it explode and see what happens. It'll explode and see what happens. Okay. Well, so that brings us to the question, the, the, the last question on the podcast is always the same, which is what, if anything, of the Royal Tenenbaums have you borrowed or lifted or stolen or absorbed into your own creative DNA? 100% from Wes Anderson, from the Royal Tenenbaums especially. Mm-hmm. I think it's this idea of that uh, dialogue can stand on its own, right? Like, you don't need a... Like, I guess there's this weird... Like, for me, personally, like, I always have this stupid habit of, like, I need to make this better. I need to do this well. But when you're handed a really good script, you're just kind of like, shut up, brain. Like, (laughs) allow yourself to act as this person because it's just already there. It's like it's a it's an incredible feeling getting a really good script and saying the lines and just believing that it's enough. And then it's an insecure feeling when you get a really bad script and you're like, how do I make this work? Right. So that's what I kind of love about Wes is just like the actors believe it'll work and you believe them for it. Even though there's not like a crazy range of emotion for the most part, it's all in this Bill Murray tract. Yeah. It's very like, uh, like Richie's character barely has any, he covers his face for half the movie for Christ's sake. So I don't know. I think it's just the, the idea that you can let it, let it just be. And that's what Wes Anderson teaches me. So is it about serving the material or just. Yeah. Always serving the story. Always. To me, I don't think you're, you're doing such an injustice if you're serving yourself. It's like this, you're serving the scene, you're serving the story, and I think more importantly, you're serving this connection between two people and that whatever that charge is that you get excited about. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. At least I think I do. I think so. I think when, when you watch I... a beautiful scene, you're like, holy shit. Yeah. There are just days when I'm really glad I didn't have to be in it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, that, none of that, the weight of that was on me. That I yeah. could just, I can be here and just sort of reap the benefits of... Yeah, it's of psychologically it. damaging. I wonder, you know, <laughs> believing these ridiculous things and just like convincing yourself it's real to the point where I wonder if this does psychological damage as an actor, you know what I mean? But that's why I love comedy, because it's like, you get to believe the most ridiculous things are real, and then you play them straight. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's true. It's amazing. That's so fun. 
Like, how do you get over that? I don't know. Just like delivering a dick joke really straight. Yep, yeah. that's my favorite thing in the world. We were talking about Silicon Valley before and the, the math involved. The math. <laughs> Those are terrifying, but you, yeah, that, that's true. You're you're experiencing comedy and theory at the same time. Yeah, I, I, I feel like I'm a, so pretentious. It's like a student of comedy and I love watching these comedy directors and that's what the Royal Tenenbaums is, was the first instance of like this deadpan humor. It's funny. Yeah. It's funny. The joke is funny. Let it be funny. Don't get in the way of the joke. You know, and that's there's so many instances of that in there. Right. And yeah. if you have Alec Baldwin narrating, it's so much the better. Yeah, completely. The, I think Alec Baldwin narrates my life. I feel that. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm waiting to hear if I can hear him. <laughs> in fact, he was wrong. In fact, he was. He never narrated my life. My thanks to Varun Saranga, who you can watch weekly in the second season of Winona Earp, Friday nights at 10 p.m. on Sci-Fi in the U.S. and on Space in Canada starting this Friday, June 9th. If you haven't seen the first season, you can catch up to it on Netflix or at sci-fi.com or space.ca. It's a great, goofy show. I'm a big fan. You should definitely check it out. You can find Varun on Twitter at Varun Saranga, all one word, and you can find the Royal Tenenbaums on Blu-ray and DVD in an excellent special edition from the Criterion Collection. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast. S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes, that would be very kind of you. Vamanos, amigos. Thanks for listening.